In your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 12. This is God's word. Who is the man so wise that he can understand this? To whom has the mouth of the Lord spoken that he may declare it? Why is the, Lord, the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness, so that no one passes through? And the Lord says, Because they have forsaken my law that I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the Baals, after their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider and call for the mourning women to come. Send for the skillful women to come. Let them make haste and raise a wailing over us that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids flow with water. For a sound of wailing is heard from Zion. How we are ruined, how utterly shamed, because we have left the land, because they have cast down our dwellings. Hear, O women, the word of the Lord, and let you your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach to your daughters a lament, and each to her neighbor a dirge. For death has come up into our windows, It has entered our palaces, cutting off the children from the streets and the young men from the squares. Speak, thus declares the Lord, the dead bodies of men shall fall like dung upon the open fields, like sheaves after the reaper, and none shall gather them. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this is our prayer today as we come to your word, that we would know you, that we would understand you, that we would come to realize more securely that you are our God and we are your people. So I pray today that you would strip away anything that we would boast in. All the things we have boasted in, all the things we want to boast in, would you remove them, pull them away from our hearts, that we may see Christ for all that he is for us, all that he has done, and the hope of our future with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We're back in Jeremiah after a couple weeks of being away for Easter, and we're kind of in the middle of a sermon that he gave known as the Temple Sermon. And we talked about some of the details of that, and I won't go through those details again today. But it's good to remind ourselves that, again, Jeremiah's ministry spanned decades. He gave many sermons. He said many things to the people of Judah throughout this time. But the message is really singular. It was a call to the people to repent. It was a message that they had transgressed the law of God 
And it was a, a call that they would turn, turn to the Lord. And so here we see uh, the message from the one who in the previous section cried tears and lamented. And we even talked about the fact that it expressed God's grief over the fact that his people sinned. They cried tears because of true grief, because of the waywardness of Judah. But Judah would not express similar grief. And so God says here in this passage that they would experience grief, even though it wouldn't be the grief over their own sins, it would be the grief of his judgment upon them. Instead of by way of true regret and repentance, they would become sorrowful for the judgment that was coming. In this passage, we see the wailing and the lament that it would be so great that the professionals would have to be called in. They would be so much so that they would need additional mourners, that others would have to be trained. And we see a specific direction given to parents, uh, mothers, to train their daughters because the next generation was going to continue to lament. In other words, the sorrow that was coming wasn't just for a moment. The sorrow was going to endure through the generations in exile. The image of sorrow and mourning that we see here beginning in verse 17 verse to verse 22 is wedged between though these other two passages that have kind of a different tone than much of what we've seen in Jeremiah. They sound more like the wisdom literature of Proverbs or Ecclesiastes where questions and answers are given. It begins with a question, who is the man so wise where God is asking this? And then afterwards he explains the answer. And then in this beautiful Old Testament explanation of the gospel itself, we see where faith in God is credited to us as righteousness, this boasting in the Lord. This is an Old Testament explanation of the gospel. See, what matters in the end is not what we've accomplished, not what we've done, not what we've gained, not what we possess, not even who we are. What matters is that we recognize where to place our hope and our confidence. Let him who boasts, boast in this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. Knowing God, that is not knowing simply about him, not being able to answer trivia questions about his character, as important as knowing about him is, it's knowing him for who he is personally. We understand this in a human connection of relationships. You could know a lot about someone who's famous. It doesn't mean you know him. And if you walk up on the street, if you ever met them and acted like you know them, they'd probably think you were a little weird. But sometimes we do this with God. We learn all about him. We learn all these details. We learn information. But we don't truly know him. And this is a call today for us to look in our own hearts and to consider, do we know God as our only hope in salvation, our only hope in this life, and our only hope? In the future. And so beginning now in verse 12, we see this three part question from Yahweh Who is the man so wise that he can understand this? To whom has the mouth of the Lord spoken that he may declare it? And then why is the land ruined and laid waste? Now, in some sense, it's a a series of rhetorical questions because you see the answer given in the question, or we see the answer kind of implied in the question itself. Who is so wise? To whom has the mouth of the Lord declared? Well, it's the prophet Jeremiah. You remember we've mentioned that there were a lot of false prophets in in Jeremiah's day in Judah. And so in some ways, this is a validating message, that this is God's prophet bringing God's message. Why is the land laid waste? Well, listen to Jeremiah's message. He is explaining why that judgment is going to come. 
Now, again, Jeremiah's ministry spanned a long time, so this isn't all chronological. We're reading, uh, in a sense, uh, you know, a, a condensed version of his life experience and the messages that he gave. But Judah was without excuse. They heard the message. He, he explains over and over again in different contexts, in different places, in the temple and in other places, so that all would hear. And in this portion of this sermon, he includes three specific indictments, he being the Lord. They have forsaken my law and not obeyed my voice. They have stubbornly followed their own hearts, and they have gone after the Baals. Now, it feels weird saying they've gone after the Baals because we have the Baals family here. And so um, it's, this, this is my Southern American English pronunciation of the word Baal, which is the Hebrew But if I said Baal every time, I would probably utter something else with it because that's not the way I talk and it would sound funny and so forth. So that's my southern explanation or or explanation of my pronunciation, the Baals. These are the false gods that were present in the Canaanite culture of Judah's day. The first indictment is the betrayal of the covenant at Sinai where God gave his people the law. And if you remember that account, God delivers his law through his servant Moses. And then to Moses, the people respond in covenant. In Exodus 19.8, they say to Moses, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. And yet we turn around and we look back through history and what do we see? The repeated rebellion of the people of God. It wasn't just once, but again and again and again, they walked away from the Lord. The second indictment is that they have followed their own hearts. How many times have we heard in our own culture, follow your own heart? That's not necessarily good advice. Depends on what you mean by it. I won't unpack all of that. But here we we understand what is meant by this, that they were stubborn. It says they stubbornly followed their own hearts. What is the sin behind stubbornness? It's pride, right? That's why we're stubborn. And I say we because we all are in our own ways, some of us more so than others. But stubbornness is what, or pride is what lies behind the stubbornness of our hearts. And when we pridefully follow our own hearts, we do what we want rather than listening to what God in His steadfast love and mercy has revealed to us for our good and our protection. We follow our own hearts to our own ruin. That's where our hearts take us. When it goes against God's word, we follow our own hearts to our own ruin. The third indictment is that the people have gone after the false gods as their fathers taught them. Verse 14, this is generational sin of idolatry that has gone on and the people have not learned from their parents' mistakes and instead repeated the very things that their parents have done. Judah had refused again and again to listen and respond to the covenant-keeping God and instead followed their own ways. And so in verse 15, we see the word, therefore, because of this, now God is going to send them bitterness and poison. If you think about the God um, of Israel leading them out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of the house of bondage, taking them through the wilderness, they cried out for food. What did he do? He provided them manna, didn't he? When they needed water, he provided water from the rock, right, miraculously. The very God who provided these good things now instead serves a different meal. He now gives them food that would not nourish them, but would instead bring sorrow and suffering. Wormwood is a small plant in in that part of the world. It's bush-like, and people understood that the taste of the leaves were bitter. 
So it was, a, it was something everybody understood when he said, I will feed you. It's not literally that he's going to fix up a meal of a wormwood salad here, but that he would feed them what wormwood represented. That is, they would suffer at the hands of the attack of, uh, or the hands of the Babylonians and the attack that would come and the exile that would follow when he scattered them among the nations, verse 16. This idea of being scattered among the nations wasn't a new message. This wasn't a new idea. It's not the first time we see this in Scripture. We go all the way back to the Tower of Babel, and we see that was a result of the people's rebellion against God, that he scattered them at that point. In Leviticus, when the law is being explained, God tells them that if you will keep my covenant, then I will bless you. And if you will not keep the covenant and disobey, then he says this. Listen to how closely this sounds to Jeremiah. This is Leviticus 26. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheathe the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. This was not a new announcement to the people. This was not some new idea, but one that they had been taught again and again, and yet they refused to obey. As we look in verse 17, this middle section, verses 17 to 22, this is where the Lord begins the announcement about the call to tears, the call to lament and grief over their sins. But yet they wouldn't do this. They wouldn't grieve their sins. Instead, God was going to have to bring a grief upon them. That is the grief of judgment. And there's a call for the professional mourners to mourn and to wail. This was a practice in the ancient Near East. It's actually still carried on today in some places. And you've probably, if you've ever seen news clips where there's been, um, uh, you know, a funeral or an attack, you'll often hear uh, it's, it's typically women shrieking and, and making noises that are, are quite clear that it's unpleasant. Uh, they would dishevel their hair. They would mess up their clothes. They were paid to come in to typically a funeral procession and express sorrow and mourning and lament. We see that they're skilled, right? That This was their, in a sense, trade. They were able to cry real tears. They would raise a wailing over the people, verse 18. And here they are called with haste to come with a sense of urgency because when the attack comes, it will be swift. They cry out the words, how we are ruined and how utterly shamed. They realize in sorrow through the judgment that what they have done has brought ruin upon them, but they still do not repent. Instead, they speak about having to leave the land in exile, verse 19, having their dwellings destroyed, indicating that that, that, that when the army comes in, it will attack everything and destroy everything. And the mourning that is expressed here is not short-lived. This is not just a one-time event. Verse 20 shows us that they would raise up a new generation of mourners, that they would teach their daughters to lament. I mentioned two things earlier. That One, that the, the mourning was so great that they needed more. So it was the volume issue. And then second, that the grief would last beyond the current generation, that this would go on into exile uh, when they were carried off by the Babylonians after they were scattered. So in this is this sense of hopelessness, that in their near future, they were a people that only had sorrow on the horizon. Their redemption would come, we're going to see that later, but it was still far off. For the immediate future, because of God's judgment that was coming because of their sins, sorrow was the only thing in their forecast. In verse 21, we see death personified in this image as one climbing through the window of their home. 
This is like a bad nightmare or a, a cheesy horror movie from the 80s, right? You, you see this, this caricature of death climbing through the window. Normally at night when we lock our doors, we feel safe. And, of course, they didn't have all the modern things that we have today, but you can imagine they still had doors and they probably felt safe in their homes. The word palaces here is actually translated fortress in many places. The expression is that no amount of fortification in your home will keep you safe. Death is coming. It will come through the window. It will come in however it needs to. And even the children and the young men would be cut off. Some commentators point out that this sounds a lot like the Grim Reaper. And maybe this is where the idea of that, that came from, because if you look in verse 22, it is a reaper that is portrayed in the, in the very next verse, verse 22. It describes the dead as falling in a field like dung being spread out. This was the idea of manure being put out for fertilizer. It, and uh, this is an agrarian ter- terminology that the people in Jeremiah's day would have understood. But here the dead would be spread out in this way. And then the image shifts to that of sheaves where the reaper would go through the field with a sickle and cut what wheat or grain or whatever the crop was in bundles until he had too many in his hand and then set them down in a pile so you'd see the piles through the field. And yet there would be no one to come and pick up the piles because, in fact, they would be bodies. It's a horrific image of judgment. This would resonate with the people of Jeremiah's day. They understood the metaphors. There is no ambiguity for them. They, they clearly hear God's message of what is to befall Judah. And then we come to the final two verses. These two really stand out to me as capturing. These two go after the heart. The other things we, we kind of can distance ourselves from, well, we're not so much like Judah. We have repented, and we, we can think of times that we've repented. We're not hard in our hearts like this. But these two verses come after us because they speak to each of us in what we put our confidence in. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. You see, the people of Judah, and we have already seen this, have been putting their faith in what they have, what they've achieved, the abilities, their resources, and their power. And God objects to this, not only because they have disobeyed him, but because he knows those things cannot save them. Those things are like the the people themselves. They're dust. We still function this way in our own day. What are we tempted to put our confidence in? Where do we find our hope? You know where you find your hope? When something is threatened and you freak out, that tells you where your hope was. Anybody been a little bothered lately by the stock market or retirement portfolios? Uh, you know, uh, major, major damage to your house, uh, car repairs, all of these things that are normal things. What that, what's our reaction to these things? Do we look to the Lord in faith and say, okay, Lord, here's another chance for me to trust you? Or do we totally freak out and think, oh my goodness, another thing. Bad things always happen to me. It's the worst. I'm never going to pay for this. I'll never be able to recover from it. I'm making light a little bit of this, but my point is, is even serious things reveal where our heart's confidence is. We still think in our own day that our knowledge, our physical ability, our money, Whatever these things are will give us our best life now. And yes, there are so-called preachers who peddle what is called the prosperity gospel, 
that say little more than what the world says, that you only live once, your best life now, right? That if somehow this is what, this is what matters, this is all there is, this is where we put our confidence. But as we looked last week in Psalm 22 on Easter Sunday, what if all of our problems were erased? What still knocks at our door? Death is still ready to climb through the window. And death is the great equalizer. Death removes all, of our, all the things that we put our confidence in, takes away our money, our achievements, and everything. It destroys not only life, but all that we possess. I don't know who said this first, but there are no U-Haul trailers attached to hearses. We don't take these things with us, do we? Now, most of us in this room get that. And we hear that, and we think, well, this applies to Judah. This applies maybe to unbelievers, but this doesn't really apply to me. So let's bring this a little closer to home. What are the things, for those of us who, who recognize that Christ is our only hope in life and death, what are the things that we're still tempted to put our confidence in? Beliefs? I'm reformed. I'm evangelical. I'm a Bible-believing Christian. Terms that we've probably all used ourselves. I listened to a podcast this past week, or part of one, between a, a ruling elder in the PCA and a, a pastor in another denomination, a reformed denomination, and they discussed history uh, and how their, one of the things, part of their discussion centered around was the fact that many people in certain denominations have put their hope in the denomination itself, like this was going to save them. And much like the people of Judah who put their hope in the temple, in Jerusalem, in their worship practices, in the sacrificial system, in the Ark of the Covenant. They had put their confidence in all of these things, thinking God would not judge us because these are ours. We, 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 we're doing it right. We have the right things. And yet, what did Jeremiah say in chapter 7? He said, don't, don't fall for that saying that you guys have all been used as a mantra. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Right? They had turned it into this kind of good luck charm. We can do the same thing. We can be tempted to think that our theology, our tradition, our denomination, or whatever is what will keep us safe. And history proves otherwise. How about our works? I do this. I don't do that. We may not say it, but every one of us has felt that in our hearts. In my lifetime, I've listened to parents, and I've been one of these parents, who've placed confidence in their schooling choices. I send my children to a Christian school. I homeschool my children. I send my children to the public school as missionaries. And many parents have said all of these things with a great sense of confidence that they figured out the right thing to do. People do it with a lot of good things. I hand out tracts everywhere I go. I give 20% of my income to missionaries. I go to this conference every year. I read through the Bible annually. These are all good things. These are not bad things. They're good things. What we do with them in our heart is a whole other issue because none of these things earn righteousness. Nor do we get to take these things and turn them into rule books for others to follow. Now, if you're hearing all of this and you're waiting for me to tell you what to do, where to go, or what decision to make, you're not going to get that. 
God wants our hearts. We're called to walk by faith. He desires us to know Him, to put our confidence in Him, to trust Him, to walk with Him. And that may lead some of you to go to the mission field, but most of us, it won't. We'll be right here. It may lead some of you to give money or time in one direction, while others give of themselves in a different direction. One may school their children in one fashion, one may do it differently. If you want a list of rules, the Bible is going to frustrate you. God's Word clearly contains commandments. There's really no arguing about those. They're very clear. The Ten Commandments, for example, tell us we should honor our father and mother. We should keep the Sabbath. We shouldn't lie. We shouldn't steal. There's really no ambiguity in those things. But much of the Bible is written in the language of wisdom and grace. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. I haven't seen it yet, but I bet there's somebody who's written a book, The 101 Jokes Christians Are Allowed to Tell or Laugh At. And it would probably sell. If you've ever been to a Christian bookstore, you know what I'm talking about. This is what we do. We take something like this and we turn it into a rule book for someone to follow. Because this is how we do it. You see how that pride begins to creep up in our hearts. We have to be careful here. Hopefully, what no unwholesome talk coming out of our mouths looks like is something different in each stage of our lives because we're growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that he's convicting us of stuff that we thought at once was maybe acceptable that we've realized now is really not pleasing to him and so we don't do it anymore. It's not a rule book to follow. It's the, wisdom, it's the language of wisdom and grace. We can't distill Christianity down to don't cuss, don't dance, don't chew, and don't go with boys or girls who do. And yet that is what we've done in many cases. The point here is not to put our confidence in our choices or our actions, but to put our confidence solely in Jesus. And then to carry out each action with a clear conscience. This is what Paul gets at in 2 Corinthians 1. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. Boasting in the grace of God is simply boasting in God alone. That it is all grace, all the time. It is nothing of our own doing. We contribute nothing to the equation. It is Christ's righteousness alone. And we're laying down what we're boasting in, or what we want to boast in about how right we've done things. Boasting in God is simply saying, He is mine and I am His. That's the message of Jeremiah in verse 24. Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. If you think that I'm saying God doesn't care what you do, then you're missing the point. He does. But he gets to tell us how to live. We don't get to write the rule books. And so we have to be careful. We're not to swing the pendulum in one direction to, 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 to write the rule book that everybody has to follow and prescribe that these are the choices I've made, so this is what you need to do. Nor do we swing the rule book into the other direction that God is just love and wants me to be happy so he'll affirm all the decisions that I make. We are to walk by faith, and that faith will produce a fruit that lives in accordance with the Word of God. That's what the faith produces. Fruit that is in accordance or lines up with 
what God's Word tells us. Verse 24, the Lord shows us what the faith looks like, that we understand and know Him. It is relational. Relationships involve time, effort, energy. It is knowing not just about Him, who He is and His character, but it is knowing Him personally, reading His Word to hear His voice, praying to Him with honesty, meditating on His revealed truth throughout our days. And as we grow in the knowledge of Him, guess what begins to happen? we begin to reflect his character. That's what it says here. In this passage, he gives us three very important foundational descriptions of who he is. Steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. Now, the word for steadfast love is the Hebrew word hesed. It really doesn't have an English equivalent. And so as it's used throughout the Old Testament, you'll see many different English words used uh, by scholars. They try and find the best English word to plug in. But it is simply, it's steadfast love, it's mercy, it's grace, it's God's unending love, it's his never-failing love. It's all of these things in one word. Loving kindness. And justice, justice is that God does everything fairly, according to the truth. Now, if it were just his justice, it would be our ruin, wouldn't it? But because of his hesed, his justice It's been satisfied in Christ, so it's not scary to us. Righteousness, that God does the right thing every time, all the time. That is, He is good and He does all things well. You see, when you put these three things together, you have this beautiful tapestry of the character of God. And when we put our confidence in Him, because of His great love for us, we have hope. We put our confidence in our knowledge, our power, our money, They, like us, disappear with the wind. None of these things can save us, nor do any of these things love us. The great love with which he has loved us fleshes itself out in our lives when we begin to understand and know him and reflect his grace, his justice, and his righteousness to others. It says he delights in these things. This is the way that we're to live, like him. His spirit produces these things in us. If you think of this as a condensed version of the character of God, steadfast love, justice, and righteousness, then the fruit of the spirit is like an expanded uh, description of God's character. So it's the, it's the same God, but this, it's, just, it's just more expanded. And this is what he does in us by his spirit. He produces his character, who he is, in us as we trust him. Judah had rebelled. They had followed their own stubborn hearts. I said it already. It's terrible advice to tell somebody this. It depends on what you mean by it. I mean, if you say follow your dreams or whatever, I get that. We all have different dreams and desires. I don't think that's problematic. But when we talk about following our hearts as like a, 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 in a navigational sense, it's really, really bad advice. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful and wicked. It's sick. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it, right? This is what our heart is. Uh, This is what we have to know about our hearts. We don't need to follow our own hearts because they often lead us into all kinds of misery. We need to know and understand our God, follow his heart, his grace, his justice, his righteousness. The problem is, is that even when we intend to do that, our hearts are still deceitful. This is why we're so tempted into turning God's law into our own rule book to follow. And for other people, we want to enforce other people follow our rule book. That little legalist in all of us raises his head and says, just do this or just do that and you'll be justified, you'll be right. 
And when we feel that pride well up in our hearts, we all know what this is. The pride of righteousness, self-righteousness. We want to tell everyone else how right they, that we are and how they can be right like us. We need to come back to this passage in Jeremiah. Where are we to boast? Instead of boasting in ourselves, we're called on here to boast in the Lord alone. This morning, Clayton read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I want to read part of that passage again, because in that passage it captures Jeremiah's message, even quotes Jeremiah at the end. It says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the beauty of the gospel. That what the world puts their confidence in, let not the mighty man boast in his mind, let not the rich man boast in his riches. This is what the world, the world puts their confidence in. All of these things will ultimately come to shame. What the world considers foolishness, that is faith in Christ alone, we see is the power of God unto salvation. The point is that our boasting is never to be in our things, our abilities, our positions, whatever we've achieved, but we all come on equal footing as beggars in need of mercy. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. We boast in the Lord alone. Let's pray. Father, by your Spirit, would you penetrate our hearts and would you, would you peel back the layers so that we can see what we're trying to put confidence in, what we are putting confidence in? Because, Lord, we all do this. We, we, we do things, we feel right about them, we feel good about them, and, and then we want other people to know how right and good we are. And then we, if, we don't, if we don't repent, we, we start turning it into a measuring rod. We start holding it up to measure other people. We become little legalists, little Pharisees. Lord, would you show us in our hearts where we're doing this so that we would put no confidence in the flesh, no confidence in the things of this world, but that our boast would be in you alone. Only you can do this, Father. So we ask this of you today in Jesus' name. Amen.